Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm Ari Ariel, the host of the channel, and today I'll be talking to Abigail Jacobson and Moshe Naur about their new book, Oriental Neighbors, Middle Eastern Jews and Arabs in Mandatory Palestine. Abigail is the academic director of the Mediterranean Neighbors Program at the Van Leer Institute in Jerusalem, and Moshe is an assistant professor in the Department of Israel Studies at the University of Haifa. Abigail, Moshe, thanks for being with us today. Hi, Ari. Hi. So I wonder if we could um, begin by telling us a little bit about your backgrounds. How did you decide to work together and how did you decide to do this book? So I came to this topic as, a, in a way, a continuation of my first book project. Uh, the first book dealt with the Jerusalem in the transition between Ottoman and British uh, mandatory r- rule. And one of the chapters there dealt with the question of uh, the complex and the uh, the complex identities of the Sephardi community in Jerusalem. And this is where I started thinking more critically about this, uh, the, really the question of complexity of identities and uh, trying to break the binaries and the dichotomies between Jews and Arabs, Jewish, and, Jewish identity, Arab identity, and trying to understand more the complexities of the, what, what does it mean to be a, you know, a Jew coming from the Middle East speaking Arabic, thinking in Arabic, um, uh, feeling part of this uh, Middle Eastern or Mediterranean milieu um, uh, in the context of, uh, of Palestine. So for me, it was really a continuation of an already existing uh, interest in a way. Yes, yeah, so we started the project in 2011 on the background of the outbreak of the Arab Spring. And I think that one of the reasons that uh, me and Abigail joined together for, uh, with uh, this project was the idea to connect uh, Israeli and Jewish history with the Middle Eastern uh, history, and also uh, in a very optimist uh, uh, atmosphere that was uh, started in this year. And it also was part, as Abigail mentioned, uh, part of uh, my research on uh, the 48th War and also the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict, but also from personal uh, reasons that are related to the discourse today and in the last years in Israel about the status of Israel as part of the Middle East, the status of the Jews from Middle Eastern countries, and the status of uh, Israeli identity or Arab Jews identity or Sephardi Jews identity that all were related and uh, were exposed as part of the uh, discourse in Israel uh, in the year 2011, but also before that. But these events also were part of, uh, of the question that me and Abigail uh, were asking uh, ourselves, and this led to the cooperation uh, with this book. A lot of the, the past literature seems to have assumed that the Yeshuvah and Palestinian society were completely separate during the mandate period. So. I guess what you're saying is to, to reinsert the issue of into the Middle East, you're, you're using Arab-Jewish interaction. Is that something you did consciously? Yes, it was, uh, it was very conscious. We, 
we, the, the integration of, uh, of Palestine, Palestine, Eretz Israel into the Middle East is also part of the rationale for our own uh, collaboration as scholars. I'm coming from uh, Middle Eastern studies, Palestinian history, and Moshe is a historian of uh, the Yeshuv, the Zionist movement of Israel. Uh, and uh, by cooperating together, we're trying to say, uh, to kind of make a statement here that uh, the history of this uh, area, which is mixed, should be integrated into, uh, into the region. Yes, yeah. so... Um This is, was one of the main uh, uh, arguments about, uh, as mentioned, about placing Palestine in the broader context of the Middle East. And also what we try to do is to challenge the dual society uh, thesis. Uh, when we speak about our Jewish relations in, uh, in the history of the late Ottoman Empire and then in mandatory Palestine, uh, it's also important to compare it to the status of Jews under uh, Islamic uh, rule or in uh, Arab states. And uh, when we discuss and compare the, this uh, concept about Jews in Middle, Middle Eastern countries and Arab countries, and Jews and Arabs in mandatory Palestine, usually in research the focus and, uh, was for years based on the Jewish society uh, concept that uh, described the relations between Jews and Arabs as the Jewish society, meaning that both communities develop in parallel uh, directions, And that almost in any aspects of life, economical, political, social, and cultural, we speak about uh, two societies with less than very uh, few connections. And this was the dominant uh, concept and thesis for years. Now, we can find in historical research, not so sociological, attempts to challenge the dual society concept. Uh, one of them is about post-colonialist studies uh, that uh, were part of, uh, of the subject of uh, research on our Jewish relations, and also about intercommunal or joint uh, thesis that try to focus mainly on economic aspects. Now, me and Abigail, in this uh, project, we try to challenge the dual society in some way, and also the, the main research uh, about this issue from a new uh, approach that uh, uh, for us was very important, and this is the approach of the Sephardi and the Oriental Jews. And we, what our argument was, And this is what, uh, how we started the research, that by focusing on the Oriental Jews, on the Sephardi Jews, we can challenge the assumption of uh, dual society. And from this point of view, we can also understand and see maybe a different angle and different perspective, not only about our Jewish relations, but also about history of Zionism uh, and also the connection of Palestine with the border Middle East. Maybe it's worth just saying a, a word about terminology, too, particularly for English language listeners. The, the, how did you choose the term Oriental here? So we had a huge debate about it. We obviously, the, the community we're talking about, the group we're talking about, is very, very heterogeneous. And we're talking about a group that consists of Sephardi Jews, of Jews who were born uh, in Palestine, Uh, about Jews coming from uh, North Africa, Maghrebi Jews, about Yemenites, about Bukharis coming um, um, from uh, about a very a very uh, a large group of people. We had a problem. We didn't want to call the book, you know, to only only focus on the Sephardi Jews because this would be wrong. We're the book deals with different groups, different perspectives, and by no means we're trying to create any kind of uh, one monolithic um, argument 
Uh, on the contrary, we're trying to uh, highlight the complexities and the nuances of all these, of all the different groups we're talking about, all the different communities we're talking about. So we were trying, when choosing the uh, the name of the book, we're, we're trying to, in a way, um, uh, you know, present or choose a title that would be a little bit more, uh, um, let's say, uh, general. Uh, let's put it this way, but also uh, and, not, and not too specific. Uh, even though, and it's also important to to mention here. The book also touches and deals some of the figures, let's say, that the book uh, deals with and focuses on are not Oriental at all. I mean, they are Oriental, but they are Ashkenazi. Some of them are Ashkenazi Jews born and raised in Palestine. Uh, some are mixed, you know, coming from mixed families, as far as the Ashkenazi. Uh, so there is a very, very uh, complex uh, kind of demographic uh, profile that we're talking about here. Yes, I will add also that uh, usually in the period of the mandate, the three categories that uh, was used that were used by the statistic department of the Jewish uh, uh, agency and other uh, uh, discourse was about the category of Sephardic Jews, the uh, descendants of Jews from uh, from Spain, the uh, Oriental Jews, mainly Jews that spoke uh, Arabic. Uh, and also uh, Persian and, uh, and mainly from Middle Eastern countries. And the third category was uh, mainly the Yemenite Jews. These were the three categories that we can find in this field. Now, as Abigail mentioned, it's a, it's a community that is dominated by the Sephardi Jews as they live, but also about the Oriental Jews that we call today Mizrahim. Now, a, a, a part of, a, of this a, a description and the the use of the title of Oriental Jews, this was the, actually the term that uh, the, uh, the Jews, the Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews, used in this period. For example, we have one of the most important uh, newspaper or a journal called uh, Edda Mizrah, Echo of the, of the East. And the term that we can find in this journal, in their, news, in their uh, publications in English, they use the term Oriental Jews. So this was the translation of the period and we, uh, as historians, were uh, committed to this uh, concept and this terminology, and we adopted this, the terminology that people of the period used uh, and the group that we were focusing on. So, so you begin with um, the Sephardic elite, and you talk about a, a, transfer, a, a transformation of power, maybe a decline of the politics of notables with the... British mandate. Could you talk about that a little and how that transformation affected the elite? Yeah, sure. So uh, we we start the book by basically, in a way, connecting it to the previous uh, historical period, if you may, of the of Ottoman Palestine. And what we see in Ottoman Palestine is that um, during uh, as part of the millet system of uh, of the Ottoman Empire. The Sephardi uh, Jews, as the Ottoman citizens uh, living in Palestine at the time, were, were considered to be the representatives of the Jewish community in the country, vis-à-vis -vis the Ottoman uh, authorities and the central uh, administration in Istanbul. And uh, so they held really a very important uh, and central political role, again, vis-à-vis -vis the Ottomans. Now, with the transition to uh, the mandatory rule, what happens is that uh, obviously the Ottoman Empire, uh, you know, has uh, disappeared, is no longer there. 
And this uh, group of uh, usually elite, as Moshe said, elite, um, a notable group of Sephardim, of, uh, of Sephardim uh, lost its position of power and influence uh, within the country's uh, um, political sphere and arena. This is also part, of course, of the different of the of the changes that were taking place uh, with the you know the rising power of the uh, of the hegemonic uh, Zionist Ashkenazi Second Aliyah um, um, leadership uh, of the way the British uh, dealt with the, this uh, uh, with the ethno-national uh, divisions in the country, etc. And so one of the arguments that we're making in the book is that. Um, this group of Sephardi Jews, uh, the elite Sephardi Jews, were looking uh, and were trying to find a different role to themselves and in a way uh, create and re, um, reconfigure themselves or redefine themselves politically uh, uh, as, uh, and find a different, a new project, a new political project. And one of those political projects that uh, they found was to adopt this uh, idea and role for themselves as mediators. And one of the big things and the big themes that we're working on in the book is this theme of mediation in a very critical way, of course. Uh, but the book is basically dealing with different spheres of mediation, trying to see how, uh, how this very, very complex group of people, a uh, very heterogeneous group of people, uh, was, was trying to kind of uh, redefine itself, relocate itself uh, uh, as mediators, arguing that they, can, that they are the ones, based on their uh, language, the fact that they know Arabic, the fact that they feel familiar and, uh, and are very, very comfortable in uh, the Middle East, in the uh, Arab countries, etc., that they are the ones that can actually uh, bridge between, uh, between the, the hegemonic Zionist leadership and the Arab community, the Arab national movement at the time. Yes, so uh, we can add to it also that... Uh, what happened after the First World War that uh, the Sephardi and also the Oriental Jews uh, uh, leadership uh, was, uh, uh, was used to a, a system that uh, didn't exist anymore. And uh, it's also part of a, of a social structure and political structure that changed during the Mandate period. So if you can find the Jewish leadership uh, in uh, other Arab countries, in Iraq or in, uh, in Egypt, in Syria, and so on, we can see that uh, the uh, Sephardi leadership continued to have their status as part of the system under colonial rule. It's true that it's a different uh, situation compared to the Ottoman period. But in Palestine, the same uh, group, the same uh, people that were used to have their uh, uh, role, political, social, cultural, based on uh, urban notables and based on, uh, on the system that was exist as the representative of the Jewish community, with the Ottoman uh, leadership, now lost their status. And here it's about their, their uh, attempt, as uh, Abigail just mentioned, to uh, find how they can adapt to the new changes and what will be their new role in a new social and political uh, structure. So as they attempt to adjust themselves and, and position themselves as mediators between the Jewish and Arab communities, how do the Arab-Palestinian communities react to that? Okay, so here, uh, 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 first uh, it's about uh, their role as a historical, and they saw it also as a mission, historical mission, to be a mediator, the one that can bridge between Arab uh, and Jews. 
the one that uh, uh, based on their inter uh, in between status or hybrid uh, Arab Jewish hybrid uh, communities can uh, bridge and to uh, mediate between uh, Jews and Arabs and this was the main uh, mission that they saw as a self perception of the status. Now we have here uh, the, the response from uh, the Jewish uh, leadership, but also from Arab uh, uh, national leaders like Jamal Husseini and others, that for them the Oriental Jews were regarded to be as uh, natives of the land, Bnei Haaretz. And this status of Ottoman citizens and people that are native of the land and are rooted in, in Palestine, was part of arguments and, uh, uh, that we can find during the mandate period, especially from Arab and Palestinian Arab speakers and leaders that describe the Oriental Jews as uh, non-Zionists. We can find a few examples uh, from the beginning of the mandate and also in the 30s and 40s, describing them as non-loyal Zionists. One that can uh, be connected and be part of a, a concept of a, of a Palestinian identity and nationalism, and one that called them to abandon the Zionist uh, ideology and join the Arab, uh, the Christian and Muslim uh, Arabs in Palestine to be part of, uh, of one uh, national uh, identity. And this argument uh, uh, placed the Oriental Jews, and the Jews mentioned about Oriental, in a difficult uh, situation. Now, the description will be mainly that they are Zionists, and we can speak later about uh, what kind of Zionism uh, what was their perception of Zionism, but they were uh, 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 placed in a, in a very difficult uh, situation. To what extent was that successful? Meaning that their sort of their defensive position then is to reaffirm their loyalty to Zionism. So, are they integrated into the Zionist administrative, you know, levels in any serious way? So the uh, the first two chapters of the book basically deal with the political dimension. Uh, of this uh, mediation project, and what we saw, what we show in these two chapters is that uh, the Oriental Jews actually do not present one uh, cohesive and uh, and united, if you if you may, a political line. They are active in different organizations. They're active in different political movements, different political parties. We can find some people who are. Uh, who are active at the revisionist uh, uh, movement, for example, and we can find some who are active in the very, you know, using today's terminology, left-wing movements such as Brit Shalom and Kedma Mizracha. But uh, uh, so they're not presenting one coherent and uh, united political agenda. But what unites them and what we we keep seeing in their uh, in their discourse, in their writing, in the way they uh, communicate. Uh, uh, with the British and with the uh, uh, with the uh, uh, Zionist uh, uh, organization, uh, etc., is that they are the ones who have the ability to really uh, uh, bridge uh, between Jews and Arabs in the country, to bridge between the Zionist movement that doesn't really rep- understand what is happening in the Arab world, doesn't really understand what is uh, happening with the uh, uh, rise and growth of the Palestinian national movement. Uh, so to bridge between them and between uh, the Palestinians themselves. Yes, yeah, so also part of their, uh, 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 what you can say about their uh, identity of being Zionist, so for uh, leaders of uh, the Sephardi Oriental Jews, 
for them they were practical Zionists. So the claim that they are not Zionists was uh, uh, rejected, of course, by them. And they described themselves as uh, uh, not true, not part of political Zionism, but as practical Zionism that had connection to the land of Israel uh, long before uh, Herzl and the establishment of the Zionist movement. And we can find uh, a few examples in the, in the discourse of the mandatory period. Again and again, they describe themselves as real Zionists, Zionists that lived in the Middle East, were connected to, to the Holy Land and to Jerusalem, the ones that continue to live in the area, and uh, that ones that uh, uh, could be described as uh, practical uh, uh, Zionists. Uh, and we can find it in several uh, uh, occasions, but it was mainly part of their discourse that was responding to Zionist leadership, but also to Palestinian uh, uh, claims that they are not Zionists. Let, let, me, just, let me just add to what, to what Moshe said. Um, earlier, the, the, they, were, they were placed oftentimes in a very problematic position because they had, because they had to, uh, in a way, uh, prove again and again their loyalty to the Zionist movement. And to Zionism, because the Zionists, the, again, the hegemonic uh, Zionist leadership and different uh, figures there uh, uh, continued to basically look at them very suspiciously, uh, saying, uh, saying, and this is connected to what you asked earlier about the Palestinian leadership, you know, kind of suspecting uh, in, their, in their true loyalty, uh, whether they are true Zionists, whether they are loyal Zionists, uh, etc. And so they uh, had to kind of prove their loyalty time and time and uh, time and time again, uh, uh, their loyalty to the Zionist movement. So part of this book actually also deals not only with Jewish-Arab relations and with the relations between um, uh, Palestine and the surrounding Middle East, but it also uh, deals and complicates the relations and the, the, the internal dynamics within the Zionist movement itself uh, and the tensions that we can find within the Zionist movement itself. Some of the some of the major figures you talk about, for example, um, Sassoon, is are really fascinating in the sort of tensions and contradictions that they themselves embody, right? So he seems to have written for Arab nationalist publications and then also Zionist publications, and he's interested in mediation, but also works in a security role. How do they reconcile those sort of tensions and, and ambivalences? Yeah. So so before uh, speaking about Eliyahu Elias Sassoon and as a, as a model of character, uh, only to add about the, the last uh, point that, uh, that, as Abigail mentioned, we can find the Oriental Sephardi Jews in, uh, in labor Zionism, in Zionism, uh, Zionism, and so on. And uh, one of their, uh, the problem of their, uh, their status, political status, one of the main problems, was about uh, that they tried to, to be not part of categories. They weren't uh, describing themselves as part of right or left in political terms. Also, you can speak about categories of being uh, religious and uh, secular. They didn't fit to these uh, categories. And what they tried to do uh, in the mandate, they tried to avoid this uh, categorization and being part of, associated with the left or the right wing, and they try, they try also to create their own political uh, parties that were described mainly by the labor Zionism that led the Zionist movement in, in the 30s as a separ separation, as a separatist. And, uh, and here we can find those arguments about being an ethnic uh, minority even. 
And as Abigail mentioned, it was the interpolitical struggle, but also social uh, uh, aspects of the Jewish community in Palestine as being part of, uh, of this community. And here we have uh, the example of Eliyahu Soson, that uh, it's a fascinating uh, story of life, one that was among the circles of Faisal uh, in Damascus uh, in the late uh, uh, First World War, uh, a person that uh, arrived to Palestine later in the late uh, 20s, and in his article that we used in the book uh, that were published in Arabic uh, newspapers, he criticized the Zionist uh, leadership. He criticized the approach to the Arab, uh, uh, what is called the Arab question in this part, time as part of the Jewish uh, discourse. And we can see his, uh, his way from this criticism to become the head of the uh, Arab, Arab, Arab uh, Bureau in the Jewish, in the political department of the Jewish agency. And Elias Sosson is, is the uh, history from, uh, from the circles of Faisal, from uh, the Jewish community in Damascus to Palestine and to become uh, one of the main uh, persons that was responsible of uh, leading the negotiation between Jews and Arabs is a fascinating story that also describes a character or an identity of an Arab Jew. So Eliyahu Sison is one figure that we're focusing on. Uh, we are focusing also on other figures which have this very, very complex uh, and ambivalent identity which is full of uh, contradictions in many ways. We look at the, of, at the role of, uh, of Mr. Vim, of uh, Jews who, are, uh, who were recruited by the uh, paramilitary groups, by the Haganah, the, the Etzel, the Lehi, to uh, become a... a to become spies or to, uh, uh, you know, plant bombs, uh, to be involved in all kinds of espionage uh, activities within the, the surrounding Middle East, uh, using a kind of a, an, an identity in cover, uh, using the fact that they speak Arabic fluently, that they have an Arabic accent, that they look Arabs, right, that they have the, the image of an Arab, if you can speak of something like that, and uh, and. What we what we show and what we demonstrate in the in the book is that they themselves adopted as their uh, 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 as their names for those kind of operations undercover. They adopted their names from the period uh, in which they lived in the Arab world. Okay, and they have this whole ambivalence uh, identity in a way identity ambivalence in which they kind of on the one hand served uh, of course the Zionist agenda. The mission of the Zionist movement used, uh, uh, used their uh, special, uh, uh, let's say, characteristics uh, uh, to, 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 to serve the Zionist movement, but on the other hand, felt very, felt very, very much at home in the different countries and the different cities that they ended up uh, in, including, for example, Beirut, Cairo, uh, different cities in, uh, in Palestine, etc., yeah, it's a, it's a really fascinating argument because it sounds almost like security becomes a form of mediation for them. I mean, maybe I'm pushing that too far, but did you, what would you say about that? Yeah, no, it's not, uh, it's actually what we argue in the book. Uh, and uh, um, as you can see, the chapters, uh, each chapter leads to, uh, to other chapter because it's a dialogue between, uh, uh, between different mediation uh, levels. And uh, we are focusing on political mediation, uh, social, uh, cultural, and also we call it uh, security mediation. 
And exactly this uh, subject of uh, the Arabized Jews, or the Arabized uh, Mustarvim, as they call them, before Mustarvim, it's part of this uh, um, uh, Arab-Jewish identity that was exist in the Middle East, but also in mandatory Palestine. Now, we were focusing mainly on uh, communities that, uh, that lived in, uh, in neighborhoods in the mixed cities, uh, that the, the Jews that were operating in this security mediation a joint Jews that immigrated from Arab countries, and both of them were part of a, of a we call it crossing the borders of uh, crossing the lines in security terms, but also the lines of their uh, identity as between uh, Jewish and Arab identity. That uh, uh, that their operation and their uh, role in security aspects uh, kept uh, this identity alive. And we and we of course look at this. Uh You know, you cannot compare the, the security aspects of uh, the mediation, let's say the mediatory role as a security agent, to the political aspects or to other aspects. We're looking at different types of mediation and look at them very, very critically, not naively, uh, not nostalgically, but are trying really to examine, uh, to examine what does it mean to be a mediator in all these spheres of, of uh, operation. So one of the other really important spheres seems to be the cultural sphere, and, and that seems focused to some extent on Arabic language, on writing and publishing in Arabic and teaching Arabic in the issue. Um, and there, there's sort of a standard argument that Zionist publishing in Arabic is a form of propaganda, but you, you both argue something quite different. Right. So we look at, uh, we look at the, uh, the sphere of the, the cultural sphere, or what we call po- cultural politics, Uh, and we're trying to examine basically three spheres of operation. One is the, through the uh, uh, Arabic uh, um, uh, newspapers, uh, newspapers published in Arabic, both in Palestine as well as in, the, in, different, uh, uh, in other Arab uh, cities and countries. And uh, many of these newspapers were published with the support of the Zionist movement. Many of these newspapers had those Oriental Jews as either writers or editors of, uh, and we're trying to look at these newspapers as a sphere and an arena of communication and uh, transmitting of knowledge and ideas, both between Jews and, uh, Jews and fellow Jews in the Arab world, as well as between Jews um, in the Arab world and in Palestine, as well as, of course, between Jews and Arabs. Now, uh, uh, this is one uh, sphere of cultural operation. The other sphere that we've examined is the issue of translation, of literary, literary translations from uh, Arabic to, uh, to Hebrew, in order, to, in order for the, um, the idea behind this is to expose the Jewish community in Palestine to, uh, you know, Arabic literature um, and, to, uh, and to this uh, kind of cultural dimension uh, of the Arab world. And the third uh, aspect that we're looking at is the issue of uh, Arabic studies and the debates about how to teach Arabic in Palestine, how to, uh, whether to emphasize the teaching of Fusha or Amiya, um, colloquial or standard Arabic, what is more important, what is the role of those Oriental Jews in teaching Arabic, uh, whether it is important for, uh, uh, for them to teach Arabic Uh, to stand in front of a group of students and, and uh, speak Arabic to them. What is the purpose of this? And our argument is uh, we, here in this chapter, we, um, we 
kind of a, a talk and, and, and argue uh, in a way we look at the other arguments that were, uh, that were uh, posed in the literature about such questions, such as, for example, those of uh, Lior Halperin or Yoni Mendel uh, or uh, Gileyal also, in a way, uh, that this, this kind of, uh, of uh, cultural mediation or of uh, writing in Arabic is really a form of propaganda. And what we, or propaganda for the Zionist movement, of course. And what we argue is that, in fact, when looking at these, um, at the, at, at these spheres, uh, the cultural sphere, the newspaper, the, 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 the uh, uh, translations, etc., as, as also cultural spheres, and not only as political spheres, the picture is much more complex. And here we're looking not only at propaganda per se, but also, again, as some kind of a form of explaining, of, uh, of uh, bridging, of uh, exposing the Jewish population, the Jewish community in Palestine to other aspects uh, in the Arab world, and also exposing the Arabs to the complexities and the, uh, and the uh, uh, questions that are raised within the Zionist uh, movement. Yeah, so when we look at the, at the background of, uh, of editors of uh, newspapers that were written in Arabic uh, by Jews, and if we look who were the, actually the Arabic uh, teachers, we can find the Ashkenazi Jews, but also Sephardic and Oriental Jews, that this was part of uh, their uh, Arab Jewish uh, identity. And uh, as we just uh, mentioned, this was part of, uh, of the role that could be described as propaganda. But in the same time, when we look uh, exactly about their uh, uh, background and about their identity, we get a different uh, uh, perspective and different point of view. And for example, if we look at about uh, the Arabic teachers, we are focusing on uh, Shimon Sommer, for example, one of the important figures of dispute that was an Arabic teacher but immigrated from Iraq and later found himself to be the main instructor of the Palmach, the Arab Bureau of the Palmach and the main leader of the of the Mistarvin, the Arabized Jews in the Palmach. And his example of a Jew that immigrated from Iraq was a teacher connected to Elias Sasson, Eliyahu Agassi, and other, and becoming part of the military wing of the Jewish community, is another example of this complex of identities and conflict. So, and that, that sort of uh, ambivalence between mediation and identity and conflict really is played out very much in, in the fourth chapter on mixed neighborhoods, and particularly you focus on Kermat Temanim, but... Um, so taking it down a notch, maybe from the cultural sphere, in, in the daily lives of Jews and Arabs that lived in mixed neighborhoods, were these neighborhoods sites for interaction or coexistence, or were they filled with confrontation? Or how, how did life play out? So it's actually both, and that's exactly the interesting, uh, the interesting story here. So we're focusing on the – there's a lot of literature and a lot of scholarship, of course, written on the mixed uh, neighborhoods in Palestine and in in the, in, in the mixed cities in Palestine – what we are doing is looking specifically at what is called the, or often called the Oriental ghettos, uh, the, uh, the, frontiers, the frontier neighborhoods which were on the border between the Jewish and Arab uh, uh, parts of the city or between a Jewish and Arab 
uh, to Jewish and Arab cities. Uh, specifically, one of our main examples, as you mentioned, is the Kerem Ataymanim, the Yemenite uh, orchard, or the Yemenite neighborhood in, uh, in Tel Aviv, in the southern part of Tel Aviv, which bordered with the neighborhood of Manshir. Uh, and we are looking at these neighborhoods as a place of interaction, of meeting, uh, of neighborhood relations, relationships between Jews, mainly from Oriental backgrounds, and Arabs. The interesting things, thing about, uh, that characterizes them is the fact that, they, uh, that most of the uh, uh, residents, inhabitants of these neighborhoods, come from a very low socioeconomic status. So they you know, are very, very different in a way from, the, from those we, we talked about earlier, the, the notables and the elite, the Sephardi elite. Here we're talking about uh, Yemenite workers, uh, or uh, Arab uh, or Arab uh, merchants, uh, uh, but very very coming from very low uh, uh, socioeconomic uh, status. And what we demonstrate here is th- is how th- through their daily interactions, on the one hand they live side by side, sometimes at the same uh, at the same house, sometimes they share the, they, they share the same uh, the same courtyard, sometimes they live in the same street. They live uh, very, very close, uh, in close neighborly relations to each other, but at the same time, they also uh, have a lot of uh, uh, tensions, many, many tensions and conflicts uh, based mainly on the uh, national uh, and on the national level. Uh, interestingly enough, it was from these neighborhoods that those paramilitary organizations, uh, organizations recruited those uh, Mistarvim, the Arabized Jews, uh, who later on served mainly in the 30s after the, the Arab revolt, served in the different uh, units um, uh, that we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. So it was, there were, for example, looking at Kerem Ataymanim, there were many Yemenite Jews who were recruited to the Lehi uh, and to the Palmach to serve in their, in their different uh, Mistarvin units. So here again we show this complexity, the nuances, the very, very delicate relationship and the different mechanisms of crossing those, again, if we spoke earlier about frontiers and about borders, here we're looking also at geographical boundaries, geographical boundaries between the mixed cities, the how, how people crossed between Tel Aviv and Jaffa, what were the different mechanisms of connections. Um, so this is part of the, of the argument over there. Yes, so while we were focusing the three chapters on... Uh, on the elite, on the hybrid Arab-Jewish identity that was described in the cultural and political spheres. In the fourth and fifth chapters, actually, again, as we mentioned, it's part of a different level of hybrid identity. And here it's, it's this, those neighborhoods, the frontier neighborhoods, between, as we mentioned, in Jaffa and Haifa and so on, but it's also about other cities that were regarded to be the periphery, like uh, Tiberias, and here we can find uh, exactly examples of uh, coexistence, of uh, of uh, living uh, together uh, in uh, in these areas, and sometimes uh, uh, also uh, expression of uh, of uh, tensions and conflict. Now, during these periods, like happened uh, like happened during the Arab Arab Revolt, uh, later in the 48th War, we can find that. Uh, Jews, both Jews and Arabs uh, found refugee in the centers of Jaffa or Tel Aviv, in the temples of, uh, of these cities. And the Jews that uh, uh, fled in these uh, 
period were described by the Jewish community in, in Tel Aviv as a, a oriental a, a culture, Jews that came from a different level of, a, of culture of the, that the issue recognized. And we can find in the discourse and description of them as the Arab Jews. And it's very interesting to compare their status, economic and social, to their neighbors, to the Arab Muslims and Christian neighbors. And there's also, am I right, that there's also a generational shift here, so that now we're talking about sort of younger Oriental Jews who were either born in, in the Mandate period or immigrated from the Arab world? Exactly. So there are basically different, uh, different categories here or different shifts that we're talking about here. There is a generational shift between the generation of the uh, parents, uh, between uh, those who uh, were educated, grew up under the Ottoman rule, under the Ottoman umbrella, let's say, uh, that, uh, that shaped their identities in a certain way, uh, and the generation of the sons who uh, grew up already during the mandatory years when the conflict, the national conflict in the country uh, increased. Uh, so we have this, uh, this shift going on. We also have the geographical shift, the geographical shift between the cities of Jerusalem, which was the kind of the more traditional and, uh, and the political center of the Ottoman uh, Sephardi activity, to the city of Tel Aviv, that became the center, the political center of the younger generation of leadership that was also more um, extreme in a way uh, politically. Yes, so we can add also to the tensions between uh, Tel Aviv and the center in Tel Aviv to the center in uh, Jerusalem and the, and the tension and, uh, uh, between uh, the new generation to the old uh, Sephardi generation, also to tensions between uh, Sephardi Jews and and Mizrahim, and Oriental Jews, between Jews for, that came from uh, uh, Arab countries to the Sephardi uh, Jews. And you can find parallel between Jerusalem and Jaffa, and between uh, elite and other circles of the society, also to their ori origin and identity as Oriental Jews compared to Sephardi Jews. And you can find it also in the 30s and 40s, the, the emergence of this kind of, uh, of tension. So I wonder, you, we started out by, um, you said one of the influences for the book was 2011 and the Arab Spring. So I'm wondering if you can just reflect on what this says about contemporary Arab relations. And I'm wondering, particularly because as I read through parts of the book, for example, um, Avisar's proposal for a political union of, of two states that are connected in some ways, it sounded a lot to me like current proposals for confederalism. So I'm wondering in, in what way maybe you can reflect on the, the contemporary situation. So the contemporary mainly... Uh, I must say it's about uh, it's part of a, of, a, of a discourse in Israel that is related to also the status and the history of the Jews from Arab countries. For example, uh, only in 2014, actually uh, uh, in 2014, uh, there was an issue of a new uh, memorial day in Israel, remembering, uh, marking the departure and expulsion of the Jews from Arab countries. And in Israel, they mark it, and remember this day, on the uh, 30th of November, two weeks ago, actually two weeks ago. And uh, this is very interesting uh, a, a, a change in Israeli discourse that expels the growing uh, um, um, interest and uh, knowledge about uh, the Jews from our countries that we can find it in uh, films and literature, also in uh, political aspects, and of course there's a political reason for this day. But we have to remember that there is a, a a discourse 
that speaks about uh, the identity and the history of Jews from our countries that was neglected and was silent and was mute in Israeli uh, uh, literature and historiography. And one of our aim is to uh, put uh, this, uh, place these voices uh, back to the center of the Israeli discourse. And, and we are part of, uh, of the changes that we can find uh, in the book as part of these uh, changes and trends of, of discourse. Now, regarding uh, our Jewish relations, uh, uh, the situation in Israel, it's, it's part of this uh, discourse. Uh, and, and of course, we can, uh, we can think uh, here about uh, the status of, uh, of uh, the Sephardi and the Jews that are in between, or used to be in between, uh, in, uh, uh, in the history of uh, Palestine and later in the state of Israel, and also asking, and this is the question that we raised about uh, uh, if this was a road that uh, was not taken, and also maybe from this kind of perspective, maybe there was an, uh, another option uh, uh, for the solution of our Israeli conflict, although we are not, uh, we don't have any uh, ambitious speaking about political solutions, but mainly about the importance of understanding uh, each group, uh, each other, understanding uh, both culture and understanding that both uh, communities had a lot of uh, sharing in common. And, uh, and, and historians, this is one uh, of our aim, to remember and to, uh, to uh, place uh, this uh, memory. I also, I also think it's very important to uh, not to forget and not to silence the connection here between the politics and the and the identity issue and the kind of cultural complexity that we're presenting in the book. I mean, the uh, oftentimes in today's uh, especially political discourse in Israel, the uh, the kind of the Mizrahi card or the Oriental card is being raised, uh, which is and and is con- completely disconnected from the political aspect of things uh, and from the conflict. And I think that this book tries to bring together both uh, issues and both dimensions together. And it's important, to, it, it's important to mention we're not trying to, we're really trying to avoid nostalgia here. Uh, we're trying to be, uh, we're not trying to romanticize um, the Oriental Jews. Uh, we're looking at them very, very critically while trying to expose their very unique, uh, the way we see it, a very, very unique uh, aspect and, uh, and, uh, and perspective, both towards uh, the ethnic tensions, relations within the Jewish issue, within the Zionist movement, but also, of course, between Jews and Arabs in general. So I think we've taken up uh, too much of your time already. Do, could either of you tell me what you're working on now, what sort of projects you have going? Uh, yeah, so I'm uh, working actually now about uh, uh, about the uh, uh, Arab, you can say about mainly the mixed government in the Israeli mixed cities in the early 50s, uh, and also about uh, uh, the League of uh, Saving the Jews from Arab countries that was uh, part of uh, discourse in the 50s about uh, the status of Jews in uh, Arab countries. So I'm. Uh, in some way, also continue uh, the same approach that me and Abigail started in this book, but mainly focusing on on uh, uh, major government in the 50s, but also uh, about the connection of Israeli politics in this period uh, to uh, to the status of the Jews uh, from our countries. And I'm trying to return and complete a 
project that I started before this book started uh, about the Arab faction of the Palestinian Communist Party, uh, the National Liberation League. That's a project that I started working on and uh, need to urgently need to finish and, uh, and publish. <laughs> Those both sound like really interesting projects. I look forward to seeing them. This book was really wonderful. Everybody should go out and purchase it and reading it. And I want to thank you guys both for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Ari.